Well, good morning, everyone. Glad that you could brave the weather and come out on the 1st of March and have just a great time at Mission View Church. I would like you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 12. We're going to be picking up there in a little bit. Genesis chapter 12. We'll be taking a look at the first few verses there. It was, um, I, it was at the age of 12 that I first felt the pursuit of God in my life. Now, that may sound funny for some of you thinking that God pursues Steve Marshall. Well, I believe God comes to seek and to save that which is lost. He works in different ways, and he was doing that. And he did it in the most unusual way for me. You would think that you would find God at church, but the church I grew up in, you, nobody could find God because the Bible wasn't even taught. But here I was in church at the age of 12, and I started to sense the prompting of God for him in my life. Now, it happened because of a series of events that I went through. It started with catechism. Now, some of you don't know what catechism is, but from the age of 12 to 14, I went through catechism, and I was to learn all the things about the church. Now, this was something my brothers went through. This is what my sister went through. And it was kind of the rite of passage into adulthood that I was to go in. I didn't question it. It was just the thing that you did growing up in United Church of Christ is that you went through catechism and you did that. Now, the positive side, at least I thought it was a positive, was I got to be with the pastor. I mean, I'm going to be with a man of the cloth, a man of God. God, certainly I'm going to learn so many things. And, and at that age of 12, I was starting to ask questions about who God was, and I was interested. It was almost like I felt like God was a distant relative that I should know something about, but I just didn't really know anything. So I thought, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get into the Bible, and maybe I'll learn something about God. Now, what's interesting in my catechism class, a month went by, then a, a, a year went by, then years went by, and not a single time did we ever open the Bible. Not one time in three years did we ever open the Bible. Now, I will tell you that we learned some interesting things. We learned about world peace. We learned about saving the environment. We learned about how all roads lead to God, and God is this big trunk of a tree, and there's all kinds of branches. You can be a Muslim branch, a Buddhist branch. You can be a Jehovah Witness, a Wiccan, a Christian. It doesn't matter. All branches are a part of God's trunk of the tree, and that's what I learned in my catechism class. Now, I want you to know, after my catechism was, class was over, I became cynical, I became a little cynical because it was as if I had eaten a bad theological burrito and it made me want to puke. There was something inside of me that says there's got to be more than this. Well, after my catechism class, I had a teacher that actually did something unusual in that church, and that was he taught the Bible. He taught the Bible, and he saw, thought of himself as a missionary in this church and he wanted to reach some of the kids. And I am so grateful that he did that because I was one of those recipients. I was one of those kids by now. I'm asking all kinds of questions. And as youth, we were interested in things that blew up. 
And so we were interested in the destructive things that were in Revelation. I mean, Revelation just fascinated me and thinking about the world coming to an end. And so at that time, we wanted to study the Bible in Revelation. And so we were asking all kinds of questions. And at that time, there was a brand new movie that had just come out. And this is in the 70s. It was called A Thief in the Night. Anybody remember those old movies? A Thief in the Night. Everybody that's younger is like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Now, in order for us to have that movie, we had to rent it. Now, you got to realize this was before there were video stores. This is before VHS. This is before DVDs. This is before Chromecast, Hulu, and Amazon Prime. In fact, Al Gore hadn't even invented the internet yet. So I was elected to go to the pastor as a student representative and ask the pastor, can we pay money to rent this reel that we can watch a movie? And so as I went to the pastor and I told him what it was about, he looked at me and he just said, Steve, I'm really sorry, but because the, bio, the book of Revelation isn't true and it has no relevance for us today, I cannot give my permission. Now, I am so glad I had a Sunday school teacher that didn't buy that answer. In fact, the Sunday school teacher paid the money himself. We watched a movie, and it got me into the Word of God. And for the very first time, I was able to see who Jesus Christ was and what he came to do in his death, burial, and resurrection. And that led to me making a commitment to being a follower of Christ. Now, I share all that because I want you to realize it was the process of God's pursuit of grace in my life. And I believe God is in pursuit of each and every one of us. And even though I've given my life to Christ, I can see every step of the way, his pursuit of grace. And God is so awesome. And he loves every single person so much that he is pursuing you. And he is using circumstances. And sometimes they're adverse circumstances. But he wants you to understand his deep and intimate love for you as an individual because we have a God that pursues us. So here's the question. How has God pursued you with his grace? Today we're going to see how he has a history of pursuing people with grace because we have a God who it's all about his glory. It's all about his grace. Let's pray that God would open up our hearts and that we could actually see his pursuit of grace in history and in our life. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that as we open your word, that you would help us to understand what your word has to say. I pray, Father, that you would help us to understand your love and your grace and what it's all about. And I pray, Father, that you would allow us to be attentive to that. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we started the series, God's Story, and we started off with just God. It was just God. He's the focal point of this series. Anybody else is just a side part. It's just a side note. God is the main individual in this life, in God's story. And we started with creation and how God lavished his glory and his grace upon this earth. It said in the Psalms that the whole earth is filled with the glory of God. He showed his grace to Adam and Eve by giving them 
all the things that they needed in life. And we learned last week that they rejected that. They rejected the glory of God for their own glory when Satan convinced them that if you eat of this fruit, you will be like God. That's what Satan wanted. He wanted them to exchange the glory of God for the glory of man. And as a result of that, there was this tsunami effect of, of, of defiance that took place in all of humanity and that, that still affects us today. After the fall, there was division, separation, there was violence, there was wickedness, there was, there was selfishness, and we still see that in our world today. And even though man rejected the grace of God, God didn't reject him. In fact, God in his patience said this in Genesis 3.15. He said to the woman, he says, there is going to be a seed that comes from you. And he said it to the enemy as well. The seed that comes from this woman is eventually, her offspring will eventually crush your head. And it was the first prediction that there would be a redeemer type of individual that would come down the line from the woman. And that redeemer is who people were looking for from that day forward. So how do we get from the point of this prediction to the actual redeemer? That's part of the journey that we are on. Pastor Kitchen uh, says this in his book, Long Story Short. He says, God's plan is to use one man, and we're going to see that person today, Abraham, to build one great nation, Israel, through whom he will provide one Savior, Jesus Christ, who will reveal the glo God's glory and extend God's grace to all people. In today's message, uh, we're, as we pursue God's grace, we're going to cover, oh, about 2,000 years of history. It's, it's a small task for us today. But if you have pen and paper, if you're a note taker, take your notes, get ready to go on this journey. And as we stop along, we have like eight little stops along the way, and they're all going to be building up. And as we do, we're going to make application for ourselves as well. So let's go on the in the first step. Now, as we go along, I want you to keep in mind one question. Why would God go through all of this trouble? Why would God go through all of this trouble? Step number one is he deals with a man. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all the families of the earth shall be blessed through you. Now, take note of this. As we go through this, God is saying to Abram, I want you to leave your homeland and I'm going to take you to a special place and I'm going to take you there because I want to do something special. Now, the question that comes to my mind is, why Abraham? Was Abraham a very righteous person? Was he a man of faith that everybody could look up to and, and that he would be the leader of this great nation that God would develop? Well, we're told in Joshua 24 that actually Abraham's family were idol worshipers. They were pagans. They were people that were far from God. So you say, well, why would God choose Abraham? 
The only thing I know is that God desire, when God desires to do something, he will do it with whom and through whom he desires, and it's by his grace. He picked Abraham to do something marvelous. Now, we do know that Abraham was in the lineage of the seed of grace that came from Eve, and so God used him. Now, notice in this calling, there's grace and there's glory. The grace is seen in the word bless. Notice what he says in verses 2 and 3. I will bless you. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Grace, grace, and more grace. We know that glory was caught up in this calling as well, because in Acts 7, verse 2, we're told this. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia. God said, go to the land I will show you. So why does God wrap his glory in this? Why does God wrap his grace in calling this guy? Because there were three things that he wanted this man to know. Number one, I'm going to make you a great nation. It's going to come from you. Number two, I am going to give you a great land. And number three, and probably the most important, because this is where you and I come in, that great nation will be blessed, and in turn, I will bless all the peoples of the earth. You see, the prediction was that through Genesis 3.15, that Redeemer would go through Abraham, and eventually that nation that is developed, and the Messiah will be born out of that nation. And so that's the picture that he wants us to understand. Now, here's the lasting principle we get from step one. God graces one person in order that he might grace many more. We see that in a big way with Abraham. We'll see that eventually in the New Testament in a big way with Jesus because many people will be blessed. Now, in a small way, I believe God wants to bless other people because of you, because of you wearing the name of God. He wants to bless other people. So how have you been a blessing to those around you? We move on to step two. We got a man. Now we're going to go to a family. Now, a family naturally takes place because of children. Now, there was a little bit of a problem in the situation of Abraham. Abraham has a little bit of dr drama here, the insurmountable, the impossible odds because he and his wife could not have children. Now, I love stories that have insurmountable, incredible odds that you break against. This Christmas, my wife and I went to see Unbroken. How many people saw Unbroken? What an incredible story of, of Louis Zampernini, the Olympic runner who was then taken, uh, who was a war hero, then tortured in a Japanese torture camp. And the story doesn't tell it in the movie, but he became an evangelist to share the gospel of what God did in his life. Insurmountable odds. Well, in this case with Abraham, there was insurmountable odds. His wife could not have children. And then we fast forward to the end of their life when they think it's all over, thinking that God isn't going to answer their prayers. God says, oh, by the way, now's the time. Now's the time. Now, my mother-in-law, she's in this room. I won't mention her age, but she's getting close to the same age as what Sarah was, okay? She was 90 years of age. Now, can you imagine at 90 years of age, Dorothy, can you imagine saying, I am with child? 
Oh, that, that would be quite an incredible thing, wouldn't it? That would be like, oh my goodness, Dorothy's going to have a baby. That's incredible. Assuming she had a husband that was 100 years of age. Nothing in that day. It just didn't happen. You don't have babies at the age of 90. But God did the insurmountable. Why did he do that? Because God chooses to go against all odds. Because he's a promise keeper. And he said, I'm going to make a great nation come out of you. And so Abraham and Sarah, they have a son. And his name is Isaac. And God, when he grows up, God gives the same promise he gave to Abraham to Isaac. He says to Isaac, he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. And from you, all the nations will be born or will be blessed. And then Isaac has two sons, Esau and Jacob. And God chooses to bless Jacob. Jacob becomes the father of Israel. And guess what? God says the same thing he did to Abraham and Isaac to Jacob on two different occasions. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a great nation. I am going to bless all the world through you. Can you imagine God pointing that out to you? It's like, man, there's something special that's going to happen in my family. God did that with Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons. God certainly blessed his family. Now, one of those sons was Joseph. And the last 14 chapters of Genesis is actually dedicated to Joseph. Now, he must have been pretty significant. Think about it. Two chapters were given to the creation of the world, and 14 chapters were given to, jo uh, to Joseph. The reason that Joseph was so important, because he was a key to the family line continuing. See, God knew that there would be eventually a famine in the land that would wipe out so many people. So God saw fit that Joseph be sold into slavery by his brothers early on. They all forget about him. He makes his way to Egypt. He rises up because he interprets dreams for Pharaoh. He becomes second in charge in Egypt. And all of a sudden, the brothers are coming. We're fa our family's starving to death. They didn't recognize Joseph. And all of a sudden, it's like, oh. Joseph reveals his identity, and they're like, oh, no, oh, no. We blew it. And Joseph says, don't worry. And this is what he says. God sent me ahead of you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. See, Joseph knew that God was a promise keeper, and God had made a promise to his father that through his family line, they would be blessed and that God would do the miraculous. Here's the lasting principle that we get here. The lasting principle is that God always keeps his promises, even in the midst of opposition. And my friends, we're always going to have opposition. And there are people right here today that you're going through something. I don't know what you're going through, but there are people that have been doubting. There are people that have been maybe depressed. Maybe it's because you just live in Ohio. Uh, maybe it's because of the gloom of the weather. I don't know. But maybe it's more serious than that. But you need to hold on to the promise of God. God has some promises for those that would cling to him. He says, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. He says, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, but I give to you. God says, cling to me, cling to my promises. So here we have a man 
we have a family that's developing, but that family now has to start into a people group. If flip over in your Bible to Exodus 1. We'll see that people group. Exodus 1, verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulon, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Note how big his family was when they came to Egypt. 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. And they multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, what we know is that they were in Egypt for 430 years. And during that time, it is estimated by this point, by a long after Joseph is gone, that there is nearly 2 million Jewish individuals of Jacob's family, gone from 70 to now 2 million people in Egypt. And once again, we see insurmountable odds that they go against. If you read on, you read that Pharaoh was evil at this time, and he enslaves the people, and despite the subjugation of, uh, of God's people, this people group becomes prolific in, in bearing children. Now here's the lasting principle that I want you to hold on to. I want you to think about this. Evil cannot destroy the plans of God. My friends, evil can never, ever destroy the plans of God. Now, in this situation, they were in slavery for 400 years. Why did God allow this evil to go on? I don't necessarily know the answer to that question. I don't understand why evil things happen in this world. I do know that evil came into the world when Adam and Eve trade the glory of God for the glory of themselves, their, their own glory. Evil came in. Remember, violence, wickedness, selfishness. But here's what I know. God uses evil to accomplish his purpose. And in this case, it was even planned for. You say, what are you talking about? You see, back before Abraham actually had children, God made a comment to Abraham. He was talking to him. And this is what God said. God said, know for certain, Abraham, that your descendants will be strangers and a company in a country, not their own. And they will be enslaved and mistreated for 400 years. Hundreds of years before it happened, he predicted it. But I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterwards, they will come out with great possessions. Underscore that idea, great possessions. We'll come back to it later. My friends, here's the deal. God never, ever promises that we're going to be free of afflictions. That theology that's being taught in so many churches that God wants you healthy, He wants you wealthy, He wants you prosperous, it's not in the Bible. It's not in the Bible the way that it's, be, that's, that it's presented. There is no guarantee in this life that we are going to go without affliction. In fact, the, the, the plan is that we will have opposition. We will have afflictions. We will have trouble in this life. But here's what God does promise. I will be with you. 
and evil will never, ever, ever destroy my plans. Ever. I will be with you. We move on. We start with a man. It turns into a family. It becomes a people group. And now this people group needs a leader. If you read on in Exodus 2 through 19, we see the rise of a man named Moses. And what does Moses do? He, Moses is saved even though other children are being, uh, are being murdered. Moses is spared because God wants to have him be a leader. Again, God works through adversity. Now Moses, even though he didn't think he could lead, didn't think he could talk to anybody, God says, no, Moses, you're my man. I'm going to have you talk to Pharaoh. And I am going to, through you, show my glory. Now when he goes before Pharaoh, God uses two things to get the people out of slavery, out of Egypt. He uses his glory and he uses his grace. How did we see his glory? Well, all the plagues, all the, all the plagues that happened, the miraculous signs, the Egyptian gods, they didn't show up. God was triumphant. And Egypt, the Pharaoh, had to yield eventually to uh, Moses as God. It was the glory of God that paved the way for them to lead. But it was also the grace of God. Do you remember the picture that God gave the people of Israel just before they left? What were they to do to be spared from the angel of death? They were to what? Sacrifice the lamb, the Passover lamb. And God would create a picture of grace. And he would have them sacrifice the lamb, take the blood of the lamb, and put it over the doorpost of their house. It was a picture that they could only be saved through the blood of the lamb, a picture of the future Messiah. They were to roast that meat. They were to eat that meat. And that would give them the, uh, the sustenance that they needed for the journey that they were to go about. Christ is our sustenance. He is the way in which we make it out of slavery. And it is through his blood that we are saved. That was the picture. And Moses was the leader. Here's the principle behind Moses. And that is this. Behind a great work of God is a great leader. God always uses leaders along the way. Now let's think about Moses though. Moses lived 120 years the first 40 years of Moses' life, you got to admit, were pretty posh because it was in Egypt. He was in the high courts. He was in, in Pharaoh's family. But then he was discovered and he killed a couple Egyptian. And so then he went into 40 years of the witness protection program. And so he's out in the wilderness and he's developing his family and he's farming and he's raising sheep. And all of a sudden he sees the burning bush from God and God says, Moses, I want you to be used. And then the last 40 years of his life were the prime years of his ministry where he led the people out of Egypt and through the wilderness. Just as a side note, the best years of Moses' life we're in the last 40 years. It was at the tail end. In our society, sometimes we just have a mentality that we put the older people off to the side and say, you know what, you just, you know, just do what you want. You can have a little, you know, you had your time. It's our time to shine. No, no, no. I believe that we should honor those that are older. We should, and, and if you are in that older camp, please don't ever, ever give up. As long as God has given breath in your lungs, 
you are to serve God and you are to be an example. When you're out in the commons, we want to learn. This is a challenge for those that are younger. Would you find somebody that's older and would you learn from them week after week? Because there is so much that we can gain from their wisdom. Let's move on. Step five, now they are out of Egypt. The, uh, the Pharaoh's army had come after them. They had changed their mind, and God took care of that. They're at the bottom of the Red Sea. And here, the people of Israel, over 2 million people are in the desert, and they're looking at each other, and they're like, okay, what now? Where do we go? What's up? What do we do? You got to remember, for 400 years, they were told what to do, when to do it, how to do it. They had no identity as a nation. For 400 years, they were, they, were, they were exposed to all the idol worship of Egypt. There were so many idols in Egypt. Isn't it any wonder that when Moses goes up on the mountain to get the Ten Commandments, when he comes bound, what are they doing? They're worshiping an idol. They're worshiping a golden calf. That's what they learned in Egypt. God had to teach them a new way. And so God used something to help them develop their identity. He used the law. You say, what in the world was the law? Well, there was three kinds of laws that God gave them. The first law was the Ten Commandments, was the moral law. These moral laws are still in place today. Remember, the first four were all dealing with their relationship with God how they were to love God with all of their heart. And the second part was the, the, how they were to love each other. Six commandments on how to deal with one another. And so God gave them moral law. Then he gave them civil laws. Civil laws was taking the moral laws and put in practical application. How do I get along with my neighbor? If my neighbor kills my cow, who's liable for that? And so that's what the civil laws were all there for. And finally, there was ceremonial laws. The whole book of Leviticus is about these ceremonial laws of how they were to worship God. Now, in, in the, the scriptures, what we know is that in the ceremonial laws, they were also to build a, a tabernacle in, in carrying that out. You can look at this picture here. And this is what they were to build. Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. They were to build this incredible tabernacle. They were to do it with gold. They were to do it with a, a fancy uh, fabric. And they were to do all of that. And the question is, where do you get all that stuff in the middle of the desert? Where do you go? There wasn't a Lowe's back then. There wasn't a Home Depot that they could go to. Where do you get it? Well, remember what God said to Abraham about his family after they came out of slavery? He says, you will leave with what? Great possessions. And so when they left Egypt, this is what we're told that happened. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have whatever they asked. And they plundered the Egyptians. Here's the deal. God takes what is dishonorable, the things that were used for idols and things like that, and uses it for what is honorable. We still do that today. Last week, as I introduced the series, I played a song that was dishonorable to God so that we could redeem it and point to what is honorable to God. Now, here's the lasting principle. The lasting principle is that God graciously provides and protects for his people by giving them 
his word so that they can live for his glory. Friends, God gave them his word then, and he's given us his word now. And he has given it to us so that we can live for him. It's interesting. They lived around that tabernacle. But now God tabernacles with inside of us. We're told in Ephesians 2 that he has become a dwelling within us by his spirit. And what God wants to do is tabernacle with you. He wants you to meet in the Holy of Holies for you to be able to understand him. And because of Christ, you are able to do that. And you're able to have his word so that he can provide for you and protect you. And sometimes we leave church on Sunday and this thing just goes on the nightstand and then we dust it off and bring it next Sunday and that's the next time we open it up. God wants so much more than that. God wants more than one conversation a week. Oh, I know you might talk to him, but he wants to talk to you. And he does it through his word. So here we have it. A man builds a family. The family becomes a people. The people have a leader, and the leader develops into a culture. And now it's time for them to go into the land. The, what we see develop is Moses takes him 40 years through the wilderness and then he trades off and says, hands the baton to his protege Joshua and says, okay, take him into the promised land. God promised it, you're going to take him into it. And we see in the book of Joshua some amazing things. God holds back the Jordan River. God allows him to defeat Jericho and defeat the Canaanites. And he divides the land. God keeps his end of the deal. He gives them victories. He does miracles by holding the sun still. And he gives the people their land. But then soon after the book of Joshua, we see something happen with the people in the book of Judges. They start becoming apathetic. They start just settling in. And my friends, I think there's an admonition for us as a church. We're a year and a half into this church plant. It's really easy for us, now that the honeymoon is over, for us just to kind of settle in and put it on cruise control. My friends, we can't do that. That's what we do by human nature. Let's not just play church. Let's not just go through, not go through the motions. Let's aggressively go forward in the kingdom and advance the kingdom of God by loving people to Jesus Christ. These people became apathetic. And so in the book of Judges, you can read it for yourself. Uh, you can see a sampling of this in Judges 2, verses 11 to 17. This is the cycle that they went through. The, 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 the people would rebel against God. They would suffer the consequences for that rebellion. They would then cry out to God, and God would send a judge, a, rede a redeemer, a deliverer. And then after things got comfortable again, they just went on back to their sin. And that cycle continued again and again and again through the book of Judges. Here's the lasting principle that we get from this. Obedience or sin are always going to be choices before us. My friends, every day I wake up, obedience or sin is before me. I, there's all kinds of things in this world that can get me off track. But the decision I make is to either be obedient or to decide to sin. And I fear that there are times that we get caught up in things that we consider secret sins, things that we can do on the side, things that nobody else knows. Please understand, God knows. And he has the, the decision before us. Sin or obedience? 
What is it that you're going to do? What is going to characterize your life? I want you to be obedient. And what God wants is to bless you. Do you want to be in a possession of, position of his full blessing? We move on. They're in a land, and all of a sudden, as they're in the land, the people are looking around at the other nations, and they're like, hey, that nation over there, they have a king that rules them. That nation over there has a king that rules them. And they say to Samuel, who's the last of the prophets, the last of the judges, and he say, they say, or the, 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 the last priest, uh, uh, the last judge and a priest, and they say to him, hey, we want a king. And Samuel says, well, if you're going to have a king, you know you're going to serve him. You're going to pay tax. Yes, 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 we want a king. And so God gives them exactly what they want. And the first king, there's three kings that are worth mentioning. The first king, he wasn't a very good king. He outwardly looked good. His name was Saul. He outwardly looked good, but his heart was filled with rebellion. And he, God said, I'm removing the kingdom from you. The second king was the king David. David was God's choice. And we're told in the scriptures in Acts that David was a man after God's own heart. And David obeyed God so much. And God and David had incredible victories in, the, in life. But David also had flaws as well. In, in 2 Samuel 11, you can read about his sin with Bathsheba. And as a result of that, God had to tear the kingdom apart from David. David served for 40 years. And finally, his son Solomon was another great king that served for 40 years. Now Solomon was wise, and he was given the instruction to build the temple because he had not known bloodshed. And God used him in a mighty way to build a glorious temple of God. And God used Solomon. But Solomon had also sinned against God by going after a lot of foreign women, and it was a part of his downfall. Here's the, uh, the guiding principle. God desires to use leaders to advance his kingdom for his glory and his grace. But these leaders are always going to be flawed. My friends, I am a flawed leader. Please understand that. We serve in a country with a flawed leader. But God will use even flawed leaders to accomplish what he wants. And here's the final step. The final step to them becoming a great nation, go from a man to a family, to a people, to a leader, to a culture, to a land, a ki and kings, to a place where they have a temple. And see, the temple put them in the limelight of the world. And the temple was so glorious, and it was meant to be filled with the glory of God. In fact, at the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings chapters 5 through 8, we see the temple is filled with the glory of God. And God says, my name will be here. And I will be, this is where I will be represented. And I want you to come to this place. And please understand, this is the place where the Holy of Holies will be. This is where the tablets will be. That is your identity, the Ten Commandments. This is the place where you can confess and you can get forgiveness. It'll be about my name and you will know that I, you are to represent me and this is what we're told in first kings likewise when foreigners 
who is not of your people of Israel, come from a far off country for your name's sake. For they shall hear of your great name and your mighty hands and your outstretched arms. And when they come and pray towards this house and hear in heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you as do your people Israel. And they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. See, the end was the glory of God. The goal here. God was ruthlessly committed to displaying his glory. Remember in, in the promise to Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I will make you a great nation and all the nations of the earth will be blessed through you. This was to be the start of that. They were to be a nation, a great nation, the greatest nation on the planet. And if they simply lived for God and they did what God said, they would bring a positive reputation to God and people would come from far and near, all the nations, to hear about the God of Israel and what God had done. And God's desire was to extend His glory and His grace to all nations. My friends, people have asked me, what, what, why, do, why do we do what we do here? I want you to know why we do what we do here. It's because we want the glory of God to be known. And we want to extend His grace. When we meet on Sunday morning, we want to glorify Him. We're here for worship. We're here for worship. But we also want to be an extension of grace to those that do not know God. We want people to hear about our great God. Why did God go through all this trouble? So that his glory and his grace could be known. And as we close out the service, I want you to take note of a couple themes. Opposition is one of those themes. Leadership is one of those themes. And we are going to go through oppositions. There's going to be ups and downs in this life. But I want you to know that God also uses flawed leaders to lead the way. And as we progress forward as a church, here's what I want. I want our leaders to be right in the center of God's will. And that today, as we close, what I'd like to do is I'd like to have, if you are an elder or a deacon, would you stand right where you are? If you're an elder or a deacon, would you stand right where you are? I want you to pray for these people. And as we close out, I'm going to have Josh just play, pray, uh, play for a little bit. I would like for you to get around one of these leaders. And would you place your hands upon them? Because the mantle of leadership is upon these guys. And then we're going to close out with a song. But I would like for you just to take time to pray. So if you would stand up and get around one of these deacons... If you don't want to leave your seat, seat you can kind of extend your hand towards them. But make sure a leader is prayed for. And get around them and let's just have a moment of prayer for that leader.